We welcome you back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We rejoin our discussion on the nature of an addictive culture with Pedro Gatos and Patricia Bucco. Enjoy and reflect. In other words, you know, one of your things that your body tells you through pain or discomfort, for instance, is that there's something wrong, that something needs to be corrected. Yet we're taught through advertising to medicate all discomforts in life. You see the ads with the butterflies flying around and it's just beautiful. And you can get there yourself if you just take this pill as needed. But again, when you look at the amounts of medications that we are on, whether they are pain medications or whether they are mental health medications, proportionately to other advanced countries, there's something greatly amiss because companies are trying to promote their product ahead of what's best for public health. The only problem is, is that when you are on these products, many of them are powerful chemicals that over time can create brain changes and it becomes very difficult at times for well-intentioned psychiatrists and prescribing doctors to determine if it's the underlying illness that's causing the problem or the side effects from the drugs that are medicating the problem, the perhaps over-medicated problem, that are creating the most pronounced and disturbing elements of the symptomatology that's being witnessed. Another one that's a huge one had to do with Purdue Frederick and the whole opioid crisis that so many people have been touched with now. We were doing shows on this and, you know, and this is a company that misbranded this very powerful opiate, oxycodone. It was saying it was non-addictive and it absolutely was very addictive and they were uh, imploring doctors and influencing right. physicians to, to over-prescribe and all of that. And at the end of the day, there were a number of states joined, joined in a suit, the attorney generals of a number of states, and they found the Purdue Frederick Company guilty of misbranding, and they gave the top three executives, one was the CEO, one was the medical director, and the third one, I forget the title, I don't know if it was a finance CFO, or I'm not sure what it was, but the three top people, they are all found guilty of a misdemeanor charge of misbranding. And Pat, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people lost their children, their parents, right. their brother, their sister. Purdue Frederick, the corporation, was giving a felony, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you have a felony, you can't do business with the United States government. And with Medicare, that's a huge loss, right? But Purdue Frederick had a bunch of shell corporations, and they were able to manipulate their felony conviction or charge into one of these shell companies, and the other companies were allowed to continue to do business with the United States government. Right. And at the end of the day, they were granted, the plaintiffs, Purdue Frederick and these three executives, had to put out some $735 million, a huge settlement, right? Until yeah. you find out that they made more than that in a single year of this misbranding, and this had been going on for five or six or seven years. So, in other words, the, the amount of money they made despite this egregious behavior, right, that resulted in Mm -hmm. all these deaths, this is the social irresponsibility. And so when you talk about addictive culture, that's what I'm speaking to. And and if I'm not mistaken, and, and I haven't been staying up with it as close as I should, but I think other companies and then Purdue Frederick again, some 10 years later, is engaging in the same behavior again and getting called up on it. So you have a small amount of a controlled substance in your possession 
that's a felony. Your life is screwed, you know, for employment right. purposes and all of that. These companies go around creating circumstances that kill hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and essentially they remain completely, <laughs> completely jail-freed. You know, they are, right. you know, a misdemeanor probation. It's, it's insane. Yeah, it's interesting how corporations are treated worlds apart from just your everyday, like, individual. Mm -hmm. And then it's, I mean, they're responsible for a lot of suffering, a lot of deaths, and they're off the hook, so. Mm -hmm. But that, yeah. Right. Um, Let me add one more thing, too, because on the addictive culture thing, just to get the diversity of the notion of the concept, I think... There are things with the way a market economy is driven that puts, as we know, profits ahead of people. And so the incentives are built into the system to promote behavior that is alienating to the humanity side of our social being, to say the least. For instance, if me and you both are big corporate owners of some type of business that's the same business, but you are a much more compassionate employer and you provide your workers with a safe work environment. You invest in safety issues and health care and, and other such things. And I don't invest in those things. I'm then able to spend less out of pocket to produce the same quantity of goods that you just did. And I can sell my product for less than yours and I can actually run you out of business by underselling you because my costs are less due to my maltreatment of my workers. In other words, that's what the addictive culture concept is. It's, it's a rich concept, I think goes in a lot of different directions, some that I don't really want to get into right now, but I, the, the concept of an addictive culture is not just about alcohol and drugs. It's about um, right. these other dimensions as well. Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned marketing as well, because that plays a huge role in how we approach these things and what we end up being addicted to. And and speaking of addiction, so I wanted to ask you, has addiction always been included in the DSM? Has it always been viewed as, as a disease? Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that? Well, the American Medical Association declared alcoholism a disease back in the 1950s. But for our purposes, that is not sufficient. I would ask, and I think most inquiring minds would ask, what constitutes its disease status, as not everyone believes it is a disease. I can only share my perspective and the basis of how I got there. The DSM, for those people that are not familiar with that language, it's a diagnostic and statistical manual. And it was put out by the American Psychiatric Association. Its first version of it was 1952. It was a DSM-1. Mm -hmm. And it included mental health disorders. It included alcohol abuse issues as well. And then in 1968, the DSM-2 mm -hmm. came out. And it's kind of this evolutionary process. And then in 1980, the DSM-3 came out. And then in 1987, the DSM-3 got revised, the DSM-3R. And then in 1994, just bear with me here, is the DSM-4. And then in 2000, the DSM-4 got revised. So that's the DSM-4R. And then the most current DSM, as we sit here and have this conversation tonight, is the DSM-5, which was published in May of 2013. During the evolution of this process, there's a couple of things that I think are important to point out. Number one, I think it was the DSM-3R in 1987. It removed the prerequisite of physical dependence 
to make a diagnosis of alcoholism or, or uh, substance dependence on alcohol. And real quickly, physical dependence just simply means that in the absence of the drug, I feel withdrawal effects. Like for me, if I don't have my coffee every morning, I get a headache. That's a withdrawal symptom of, of a physical addiction to caffeine. Right. And so most people that are in recovery from alcoholism or that go to AA meetings and that type of thing, they were never physically dependent on alcohol. There's a real misperception that people have that in order to become and be alcoholic that you have to be waking up drinking all the time. Are there people that do that? Absolutely. But the majority of people that are in recovery or suffering from alcoholism or chemical dependency never had that type of relationship with alcohol. In fact, the vast majority of chemically dependent people, they're able to keep their jobs. It it helps to serve and to show themselves and deceive themselves into thinking their problem is not as big as it really is, actually, in, in some way. So the DSM... I always was pretty critical of it because it was so general and nonspecific with some mm-hmm. of its terminology. And I developed chemical dependency model that I think is much more practical. And is consistent with the science. It, it's understandable and it's a way of explaining the disorder. Maybe before we go there though, Pat, I just did want to indicate that the, the terms alcoholism is now with the DSM-5, there's a huge movement to remove that from the lexicon of of addiction theory. I'm a big fan of using words that people understand and make sense to them. So I use the word chemical dependency. So for instance, let's say you and I are friends and let's say I'm alcoholic and you're not. And so I got all these problems being generated by my alcoholism, but it turns out that you abuse uh, Xanax bars, okay? And you have all the same problems that I have, except you don't drink. Are you alcoholic? No, you don't drink. But we both have what? A chemical dependency. Our chemical is different, but our relationship to the chemical is the same. When you create a continuum, going back to the assessment deal, (laughs) there's different categories that you can maybe create that are artificial. One is maybe no problem outside of the arrest. That would be like a social drinking DWI offender. In other words, you got a DWI, but you don't have any of these other signs and symptoms that we mentioned earlier or nothing of significance. And so probably the 12-hour class is a good place for you to be. You know, you just take that class and that's it. A little bit farther down that continuum is the potential problem range. That person also has a DWI arrest, but in addition to their DWIS, they have one or two other signs and symptoms. Maybe they had a couple of distant blackouts or something like that, or maybe they've got some kind of family history issues or something of that, but they don't have both, you know, or something like that. Right. So that they have more than the first group, but, but less than those that are farther down the continuum. If you move to the next level, that would be a problem drinker, but not chemically dependent, Okay. So is mm-hmm. it possible to be a problem drinker and you're not alcoholic or chemical? I, I believe you, you, it is. It's just, a, it's just a manifestation of additional signs and symptoms, right, that can be shown to the individual being assessed, right? So they've got three or four. It can be not just the number of signs and symptoms. It can be the chronicity of that sign or symptom, right? Me and you right. both had family history, but yours is removed from immediate family history, it's a cousin, it's an aunt, you know, whatever. Mine is, you know, all over the place and and direct lineage. That would just give you more weight in the assessment process when you're trying to place, where are we going to place 
Pedro on this continuum? Where are we going to place Pat on this continuum? And then finally, in the problem range, as you extend it past the problem, not chemically dependent range, there's the whole chemical dependency area. That's the last range of the continuum. And you've heard of early, mid, late stage alcoholism or something. That's kind of the same concept, early, mid, late stage chemical dependency. So when you look at what puts somebody in this chemical dependent area, there are about three or four, what I call hallmark signs. Have you heard of that word before? Hallmark signs? You know, kind kind of telltale signs. If you have this sign, with any health condition, it's likely you have this health condition, right? So one of these three is impaired control. And by the way, this is very consistent with the DSM we were talking about, by the way. So this is not to reinvent the wheel. But impaired control, it just means over time, some people, as they drink, sometimes lose the ability to control their intake, that they will drink until it's all gone type of thing. That's Right. And if that's what happens when you drink, then that's a big red flag. That's a hallmark sign, okay? And it's not just physical loss of control. It can also be some other people manifest their loss of control behaviorally, like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Have you ever been around somebody that when they drink, they just become really belligerent, they become mean, they say things that are just totally unacceptable? And and by the way, that's not the time to talk to a person about that. (laughs) But, but, But that whole Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde syndrome. And another thing that's related to that is some people become emotionally, they just lose all their boundaries, right? They just start crying over, oh my God, it's raining outside, you know? Well, yeah, it's going to rain, you know, it's rained before, it'll rain, you know, that type of thing. But that's not normal. In other words, that person's biochemistry is such that when that chemical gets inside of their chemistry over a period of use time, different for different people, it may create th- this outcome. So that's that's one of these hallmark signs. A second one, and you certainly don't have to have all of these present, actually any of them present to me would suggest to continue to drink it is a very poor choice. But the second one is compulsion. And I'm sure you've heard of that word. Some people mm-hmm. struggle when they try to define it. I define it by just an overwhelming urge. You know, we have an urge it becomes a compulsion when, when that urge has got you and you don't have it anymore. One of the words they used to use that was similar but different, and they dropped it from the lexicon in the DSM-5, but it's called preoccupation, where all you think about is this drug, for instance. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about this drug. You've been working really, really hard. You're sweating up a storm. Come on, 5 o'clock. I want to get me some broccoli. I use that. It's kind of a joke. You know, I don't mean a street name for marijuana either. I'm just talking about if, right. if you have, if that's all that's on your mind, then you have a preoccupation with broccoli. But the point I'm trying to get to with compulsion is overwhelming urge. If you were to draw on a piece of paper, a circle, and then make a pie of life, eight hours a day, you're at work, right? Eight hours a right. day, let's say you're sleeping. So now you have eight hours left. When you come home, you may have social activities, You may have family activities. You may have hobbies that you enjoy. And then you you may have a spiritual side. You go to church maybe on, on Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And then finally you drink. You use a chemical. Okay, so that chemical use is part of a overall 
pie of life type of thing. As mm-hmm. you develop and if you develop a chemical dependency, the chemical, in, instead of being part of the social activity, right? That's what social drinking is. It's like, I'm hanging out with you and my good friends. I really enjoy your company, right? The drink is part of the company. It's part of the deal. But if I develop a chemical dependency, guess what? The chemical becomes the main incentive, the main attraction, rather than the social act of being with friends, right? Let's say we were married, okay? And let's say you said, hey, let's go to a play tonight. And let's say I'm chemically dependent. And mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking play. No, I can't drink there. <laughs> right, right. No bar, mm-hmm. no alcohol, no way. Boom. I think, no, right. no, let's go to this jazz venue. You're the best. You deserve the best. I want you to see this best band. Why do I want to take you there? My chemical will be available. So the chemical, right. that, that's what the compulsion part is. It's really an important term. It's the overwhelming urge. And it, lastly, let me just give you a third major criteria Mm -hmm. so 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 far we have impaired control and compulsion as hallmark signs third one is continued use despite adverse consequences right so let's say i find out from my doctor that i am suffering from some type of uh, enlarged liver i'm getting fatty liver and um, he's Mm -hmm. saying if you don't stop drinking you're you're starting to develop cirrhosis you're going to lose 10 years off your life but i continue to drink anyhow it's like the chemical, again, has got me. I don't have it, right? And this continued use despite adverse consequences, it's like, ha- have you ever heard of the word self-injurious? Yes. You need to just self-destruct yourself. Um, that, 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 like- that's exactly what it means. The biological nature of the human being is we never intentionally harm ourselves. We just don't do it. You know, you don't, right. w- you don't wake up every morning and get a hammer and slam your thumb with it and go, oh, okay, I'm up now, you know. You just don't do it. Now, some people will cut themselves, that, but that's a mental health issue, right? That's not mm-hmm. normal. And so, for instance, I just want to use an example with, with marijuana, for instance. You know, we all have values in life. Let's say I was married and had two kids, and I have great friends. I got a great job. But my number one value in life is my wife and kids. I mean, they are top shelf, and then there's nothing that comes close to that, right? Yet, Mm -hmm. I have all these other interests that I enjoy, too, that I just kind of alluded to. And let's say my wife says, if you don't stop smoking pot, I'm out of here with the kids. And I go, man, you are my world. We've obviously had these problems before. I'm done. Never touch it again. End of story, right? Well, within mm-hmm. a week or two, I'm out back with one of my best friends in the garage working on a car, and we're smoking pot, and I'm sticking my head out to make sure my wife doesn't see me. What, what's going on there? You know, I'm putting at risk what's most important to me. That's a self-injurious. That's really what I believe makes it a disease, okay? The disease right. theory of alcoholism is that people will say that, look, nobody has a gun to your head. You are voluntarily putting that beer, wine, or whatever to your mouth and sipping it, you know, and that's, there's a lot of truth to that. But what they don't get is that when you have someone that has a chemical dependency problem and they take a drink and then you have somebody that does not have that type of problem, that there's two different biochemistries and something profoundly different happens inside of those two bodies when you do that. Just like some people are allergic to peanut butter and others are not. I think this is the way this thing unfolds. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Can people that have chemical dependencies eventually return 
to drinking in a way that's not destructive. It, anecdotal evidence that some people can, but it's such a small minority of people, such a small percentage, it does not dismiss the legitimacy of theories that describe the 90% plus people that it applies to. I know that's a lot, but I hope that addresses some of what you were asking about with the addiction thing. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess just to finish off, what are some of the signs and symptoms that trigger a proper concern? Because you mentioned a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, hiding and drinking like in the garage or something for someone to have a chemical dependence. So what are some things that you notice that can be a cause for concern? Well, I think what's interesting about this disorder and in general is that to appreciate it is that most people, when they start drinking, the problems that develop usually for most people that develop problems with drinking, they don't occur overnight. It occurs over quite a period of time. So it becomes very yeah. gradual. And, um, and that's why they use this word insidious. And I have a lot of fun drinking. So if I was doing an assessment, let's say, on you, and I saw, hey, Pat, you know, you've got these three or four alcohol-related arrests in the last seven years. You've never been arrested on anything that didn't involve alcohol. Do you think you have a drinking problem? And you say, no, I don't have a drinking problem. I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time. If, if you were married to my husband, you'd be drinking too. Drinking is something that you have done for a long time. You've had a lot of good times doing it. The idea of giving it up is not a happy thought. So the one thing we haven't talked about is this term denial. If I was to say, okay, let's give you a lie detector test. Strap that on you and say, okay, Pat, you think you have a problem? And you say, no. How do you think you'll do on that lie detector test? Most people will pass it, right? So denial is a psychological mechanism that protects us from conscious realization from unwanted information. It helps us deal with a tragic death in the family for a temporary period until we can properly assimilate it. So the chemically dependent person may not even see the problem. It's not that they're lying about it necessarily. They just don't see it. So one of the things that's a concern to me is that a lot of people, and I think it comes from 12-step language, mm-hmm. well, this, this person hasn't hit their bottom yet. You can't make somebody stop drinking, and that's true. It has to come from that person, but I'll tell you what, if you wait for somebody to hit their bottom, their bottom might may be death. I don't mean to be dramatic exactly. here. You know? yeah. So if you know all of these signs and symptoms and, and you're the best friend, if it's your very best friend saying, you know, I love you to death, and when you do this and that and the other, this is really concerning me because now you have an IQ that's much higher about this subject, right? And you can bring it to their attention. So to your point, I think uh, things like blackouts, periods of time where you can't remember part of the night before after heavy drinking, the people that have them frequently, that's what the real, real big red flag is. So to even have them is not good, okay? So that should catch your attention. But to have them frequently on a regular occurrence is a, is a big red flag. I think drinking to excess tolerance, if you will, blood alcohol level, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that can sometimes indicate deals. But I think really they need to manifest themselves, these signs and symptoms, in a compulsive and pathological relationship with alcohol pathological, meaning disease-like, and the compulsion side, where it's uh, urge has got you, you don't have it. It's almost like this deal's gotten into your brain, right? It's hijacked your brain. No, 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 we're going over here. You know, it's like an airplane jet, right? And you're in, right. That, and you're in that cockpit, and you've just taken it over and said, no, no, we're going over here. 
Yeah, um, I especially like that analogy of hijacking your brain because alcohol essentially, I mean, I studied some of this stuff, so it's very much connected to affecting your neurological tracts and your prefrontal cortex, which is in charge of executive function, so impulsivity, decision-making, stuff like that. Very good, that's Um, true. Been proven in research that the prefrontal cortex is usually the first thing that's affected by um, substance. Which, which means what? That as soon as you take a drink, the first thing that's affected, and, and you're right about this, and we teach it in the classes, is is your judgment, your decision making. Right. So standing here and sitting here, it's like a catch twenty two. The very thing you rely on to make good decisions. Right. I know we're about out of time, so I'll let you wrap it up. All right. Well, I'm. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I think that this is very important that we're having discussions like this. And like you said, there should be more classes like this, not after a problem is indicated, but before a problem is indicated. It should be preventative. And I'm very excited to be doing more shows with you. I'm looking forward to it, too. Pat, thank you so much for hosting this show. And we will look forward to doing more of these shows with this series our addictive culture, chemical use, and misuse, and the magical host, the human brain and body. Well, I look forward to having more conversations around that very, very ambitious title. Thank uh, you so much. Uh, thank you, Pat, for navigating us through this discussion tonight. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet. If you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Check out the bozo. Oh,